Welcome to This Is America, August 10th, 2022. On this episode, we feature three interviews. The first with Michael Lawfer of the Four Thieves Vinegar Collective, a group of anarchists creating DIY biohacking tools with the intention of producing free to low-cost medical care for people who lack access. In July, the group made waves at a hacker conference by announcing they had developed a DIY kit to make and discreetly mail abortion medication. We also get an update on tenant organizing efforts at a mobile home park in upstate New York and hear from two participants in the ongoing fight to stop construction of Cop City in the Atlanta forest. Together, we discuss the recent week of action and how the movement is building. All this and more, but first, let's get to the news. As this episode was wrapping up, Donald Trump's resort home in Mar-a-Lago was raided by the FBI following reports earlier this week that Trump had tried to flush documents down the toilet and also destroy visitor logs and phone records. Destruction of such records could mean that Trump violated the Presidential Records Act, which in theory could bar him from running again for president. FBI agents reportedly took with them documents, electronics, and cell phones from the raid. In a statement, Trump in classic conspiratorial tone blamed the radical left Democrats for persecuting him, and far-right grifters across the spectrum quickly responded by escalating their rhetoric, while Trump supporters called for protests against the FBI. Stay tuned on This Is America for a deeper dive next week. Meanwhile, in Boston, Massachusetts, over 100 community members held anti-fascist banners and marched against repeated attacks and flash demonstrations by neo-Nazi groups. In Berkeley, California, Los Angeles, California, and Atlanta, Georgia, the fight to save autonomous space continues. Last week, protesters in Berkeley tore down fences and pushed back riot police from People's Park, disabling construction machines and retaking the space. At the time of this writing, people remain at the park and have begun to work once again on the land while a judge has halted the construction of a student dormitory upon the historic site until October of this year. In Atlanta, Georgia, the week of action in defense of the Atlanta force has wrapped up. It included street actions, musical festivals in the forest, and various educational and outreach events. A contractor's vehicle was also set on fire after a construction crew attempted to tear down a gazebo while people were under it. Check out our interview on this episode for a further report on what went down, and be sure to watch itsgoingdown.org for a complete roundup of the week of action coming soon. In Los Angeles, people tore down fences around Echo Lake Park, dropping banners reading Community Defense. This comes in response to ongoing attacks on the house's community. Meanwhile, in Oakland, private security tried to violently evict the ongoing occupation by students, staff, and community members of Parker Elementary School, one of several schools recently closed by the Oakland Unified School District, a move which forced working-class students, largely of color, to travel much farther to attend a public facility. Finally, in New York, defenders of reproductive freedom once again faced off against far-right protesters at a monthly defense of a local clinic. 
Clinic defenders were successful in holding off the anti-abortion demonstrators, even as police made several arrests of clinic defenders. And now for some upcoming events. On August 13th through the 21st, there is the Institute for Advanced Troublemaking Anarchist Summer School. On August 20th in Reno, Nevada, there is a Rock Against Racism benefit show for mutual aid groups. In Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, on August 27th through the 28th, there is the Philly Anarchy Fair. On September 3rd is the Halifax Anarchist Book Fair. And on September 10th through the 11th is the New York City Anarchist Book Fair. Then from September 10th through September 18th, there are Running Down the Walls events happening in Chicago, Philadelphia, Austin, Brooklyn, and Los Angeles, California, among others. Be sure to check our show notes for more information. Also on September the 11th is the Austin Anarchist Book Fair in Austin, Texas. Then on September 24th through the 25th is the Victoria Anarchist Book Fair, followed on October 15th by the Radical Atlanta Book Fair. And finally, if you value what's going down as a revolutionary autonomous media resource in times of crisis and you have the means, please go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop. And that's itsgoingdown.org slash shop and help us grow. You can sign up to become a monthly supporter or give us a one-time donation. You can follow the podcast, check out our RSS feed, follow us on whatever podcast platform you prefer, listen to us on the radio, tell a friend about us, Follow us on social media like Twitter, Instagram, and Mastodon. And finally, if you enjoyed this show, check out other amazing content on the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network. That's going to do it for us. Enjoy the interviews and the discussion, and we will see you soon. My name is Michael Laufer, and I'm the chief spokesperson for the Fourth Use Vinegar Collective, which is an anarchist collective that works to increase access to medicines and medical technologies by any means necessary. Well, we're talking today because you all are going to be releasing some information in an upcoming conference. Tell us about that. Yeah, so uh, HOPE is Hackers on Planet Earth. It's a conference that's been given every other year since 1994. Um, Of course, two years ago, we had to skip because there was a plague on. Um, but they've been very, very good to us in the past. We've had very receptive audiences, and we've managed to announce a lot of different things that we're uh, managed to bring bring to the public. So this year, we have a handful of really cool things. We have um, a new version of the Apothecary Microlab. This is the sort of our flagship project that we've been working on perpetually since we started. It's an automated chemical reactor that has the capacity to manufacture small molecule drugs, and it helps you through the things that are easy for a machine, but easy for a human to screw up. And then it asks you to help it through the things that are hard for a machine to do, but easy for a human. We're in version four now. It's um, much easier to build. It doesn't require any soldering. It snaps together. It doesn't require a second computer to run. It has its own touch screen, much easier to interface with. So that's pretty exciting. We have an automatic external defibrillator that's a DIY version that you can build yourself and it runs better than off the shelf units. We also have supporting gas and drug units for that to support the AED and the CPR. So sort of remixing our EpiPencil project to 
inject epinephrine and vasopressin so that people are more likely to live through a cardiac event and then also hijacking sports oxygen containers, which aren't very useful in a sports context, but are very useful if you have a decrease in blood oxygen saturation. So that's really exciting. We have a project for lower gut microbiome repopulation. People are constantly now talking about the uh, gut-brain axis, and we managed to uncover a well-researched but not very well-publicized aspect of that, that if you do a little bit of work that's just additive, you can rebuild your gut microbiome with a few supplements that are off the shelf, and your body will produce more of a key GABA precursor, butyrate, which then allows your brain to have more butyrate, which means you will be less likely to be anxious or depressed. You're more likely to sleep better and you're more likely to digest better. We found a medication that can actually cure a certain type, only one particular type of long COVID in certain cases. It's not a panacea by any means, but it's nice to know that some people might have some recourse. And then we also have some things to release surrounding the uh, shenanigans that the so-called Supreme Court got up to and uh, made unavailable. So there's a lot. You know, we had you on the show, maybe it was two years ago, right, when COVID was hitting. I'm curious to kind of go back to that. Yeah, well, as a general rule, what we try to do at Four Thieves is sort of march away from the sound of the guns. And so we kind of came out of the gate pretty fast because it seemed like most of the world wasn't taking COVID very seriously. But this was back in like late January or early February of 2020. And people were like, oh, it's not that big a deal. It'll blow over. And we were all very scared, um, thinking that it was going to be a big deal. And so we did release uh, the Anarchist Guide to Surviving Coronavirus, which was the best information we had at the time, and most of it has aged reasonably well um, in terms of that information. This was, of course, before there were vaccines and, um, you know, when really not a whole lot was known. But they're just sort of general good guides for how to handle a pathogenic reality that you happen to be stuck in. Um, once the world caught on that this was actually a big deal that needed a lot of scrutiny and a bunch of really well-funded labs with a bunch of very sharp people started spending all of their time and energy working on it, we decided, well, okay, this is maybe, you know, time for us to step back. There are people with, you know, resources and, and time and expertise to dive into this. Our goal is always to sort of dig into stuff that um, people that sort of have left behind. And so we kind of moved on from that. Um, and in terms of our workflow to your question, we already were a distributed collective all over the world. So we were very much used to working in sort of so-called virtual environments, online environments. So it didn't put much of a hiccup into our work. It was just that instead of, you know, two or three times a year, we kind of, see each other, you know, various members of the collective would connect here or there. Uh, that stopped happening. 
so it was just sort of the periods between those meetings became a lot longer. And um, we finally started being able to see each other you know, in the last few weeks, which is really exciting. Um, in terms of the whole COVID thing, we, uh, we have looked at it again, as I mentioned, and it seems that long COVID is this thing that's not being taken as seriously as it should. A lot of Western doctors are saying like, oh, it's, it's a myth. It's, it's psychosomatic. It's, it's the same as chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia. These aren't real things. These are just things that people make up when they're feeling sorry for themselves, which of course is ridiculous. Nobody wants to be chronically ill. Um, but people who have these sorts of chronic illnesses are often left behind because the attitude in a lot of Western doctors' minds is, well, if we don't have a way to cure it, then it effectively doesn't exist. So we're going to ignore it. Um, so that, that's been the main impact of, of COVID. Uh, just we looked at it really hard in the beginning and then everybody else was looking at it. And so, again, we're picking up sort of one piece that seems to have been ignored and trying to commit guerrilla warfare in all things, you know, use the weaknesses as strengths. We've been working really hard to try to say, okay, well, if we're, if we're not able to meet and we can't go to conferences because it's not safe, let's, let's take the time to try and push all these projects along, which is why we have so much to release uh, this year, which is pretty exciting. Initial leak happened in Politico. There was uh a lot of stuff that was written, obviously, about how people were going to respond. And one of the, one of the things was you all were in the news talking about manufacturing people's own uh, abortion pills. And it was great to see you all once again in the news cycle. Um, you know, the headline you. Anarchist Collective puts out into the world uh, DIY abortion pills was a fabulous headline. Talk about that experience. Yeah, well, the the irony of that was that video that we had put out was from months and months prior. The high courts in Texas had put together some sort of abortion ban that was extremely far-reaching. And so we scrambled and said, okay, well, you know, we've done workshops showing people how to make their own abortion drugs, but we never really documented it in an easy-to-access way. So it's time. And so we tried to put it together um, very, very quickly and managed to, in a few days, uh, shoot and edit a video that explained uh, how to make your own abortion drugs. And it, it unfortunately didn't get a whole lot of traction. We were very excited about getting it out there, thinking that it was quite relevant. But because it was only in Texas, you know, speaking about the news cycle, it, it kind of fell from the public eye pretty quickly and it didn't seem like a whole lot of people really felt it resonate, which we found rather disappointing. But, you know, some days are like that. You know, you don't quite know always what um, is going to be relevant. But it was still up when the leak happened from the Supreme Court. And uh, I got a message from somebody saying, hey, aren't you the one who posted the instructions on how to make your own abortion pills? And I said, uh, yeah, why? And they just said, probably time to repost that right now. And and then I, you know, sort of looked at the news and said, oh, oh yeah, I guess uh, 
I guess that's the thing to do. Okay. So we did. And as you mentioned, it, it got a lot more traction this time around, which is nice to see um, that the information is getting out there. It's extremely depressing, the reason why it's getting out there, of course. And, um, and while it's still relevant, we did revisit this problem of how do you make your own abortion drugs? Because this is, this is kind of a really strong archetype of the type of problems that we try to address at Four Thieves, where you have a social medical problem that has a technical solution that bypasses all of the traditional things that normally feel like the barriers to access. Is this too expensive? Do you have to travel to get it? Who is the gatekeeper? How do you get in touch with the people who need it? And when you have DIY solutions, all of those sorts of problems kind of go away. Now, what seems most relevant at this particular point in the history of this problem is that it seems like now people are going to be manufacturing not just for themselves, but for their wider community, for their friends, for maybe people they don't know, but looking at the possibility of manufacturing on a slightly larger scale. Now, one of the things is that, so for the, and when you talk about, asked about the uh, nuts and bolts of it, the nuts and bolts are that the, the best solution to medicated abortion is when you have mifepristone and misoprostol. And that's 95% effective or, or better, depending on the data that you look at. If you use misoprostol only, it's more than 85% effective, which is still quite, quite good. And misoprostol is much more accessible. The problem is that misoprostol, you have to press into tablets. The reason for this is if you just put it into a caplet and swallowed it, your stomach acid would destroy it mostly. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's an ulcer medication that's designed to work in that environment so it won't get into your bloodstream. So you need to make a tablet and not a capsule, and you need to have it dissolve in, you know, in your cheek. So this presents a problem in a number of ways. Pressing a tablet, if you're doing them one at a time, is not that big a deal. Uh, there are ways to do that, and that was sort of what we showed in our video. If you have the right amount of active ingredient, especially if it's pre-buffered out with a stabilizer, you can just press it into a tablet with any number of one-off tablet presses where you're pressing them one at a time. This becomes much, much, much more complicated if you're doing them in any volume. If you're not doing one at a time, but you're trying to do a bunch, then all of a sudden things get really complicated really fast. Trying to press tablets in volume, it's really hard to get right. Tablet presses are available, but they're very expensive. And beyond being very expensive, on top of that, there are plenty of ways that it can go wrong. What's the moisture content? Is it going to stick together? Do you have the right pressure? Have you calibrated it correctly? You need to lubricate the thing. You need to have the settings so that the tablets don't just break apart or 
what's called decapping where the top will just break off you you know and and on and on and on and it gets much more complicated and we're sort of talking about this at the collective kicking ideas around and somebody just kind of cocked their head and said would it be possible for us to just put them into blotter paper like LSD and we all kind of took a moment and looked at each other and said, well, let's figure this out. And it turns out you very much can. And this is extremely exciting because what it does is it makes it, first of all, almost trivially easy for people to manufacture these and manufacture them in volume. You literally take the active ingredient, you dissolve it in Everclear, and then you just take a measured pipette and you just take out a measure of the fluid and you drip it onto a blotter paper and you let it dry and you're done. You've created the medicine. Real quick, at this point, is any of this illegal or does that not even have been decided yet? Oh, I mean, I think most of this is illegal, but this kind of doesn't figure into our decision-making process. No, I understand that, but I'm saying, like, in theory, if you made this at your house in order to induce an abortion, you could be in trouble. Um, Absolutely. If, if anybody found out about it, sure. But that's sort of part of the strength of it is that it's very hard to detect. Um, one of the things that's really cool is that if you're planning on sending this through the mail, you don't have the traditional problems that you do with tablets where rigid object detectors and mail systems are going to see that or detect that. It's just a piece of cardstock. So it just goes through. You can send it through regular mail. There's no way to detect it. However, yes, from a technical perspective, as I understand it, you have entered into a gray area legally that I would say is, you know, on the darker side of Heather, as it were. Uh, I'm not quite sure where the break point is. Theoretically, you only are holding on to a research chemical until you do something with it um, or decide that it can be used or should be used for medical purpose. This pipe is only for smoking tobacco. Right, that, that same sort of thing. So I think that for people who um, think about these sorts of where does it land in the legality spectrum, will find clever dodges like that. I think that until you have either used it for a medical purpose or suggested that it can be used for a medical purpose or given it to a third party with the intention of it being used for a medical purpose, that you're just an amateur chemist screwing around with research chemicals. There's nothing illegal about owning it per se. There's nothing illegal about dissolving it into a solvent and seeing if it will, you know, bind to paper. Um, I think it comes in with the point where it's either actually utilized or um, distributed with an intent to utilize. Uh, but again, you know, ask your lawyers, they will know better than I. Um, but, and, and our lawyers have opinions about this that they think are, I mean, depends on the state as well. There are things like, distributing a dangerous drug or distributing a dangerous drug with an intent to defraud or 
um, practicing medicine without a license. But again, a lot of these laws are written very, very poorly and very, very blanket in order to be able to be utilized in a very broad manner. In the state of New York, for instance, if you said, hey, Michael, I have a headache. And I said, huh, have you thought about taking an aspirin for that? I am technically in violation of practicing medicine without a license in the state of New York, and that's a felony. Now, nobody's ever going to prosecute that, of course, because it's a joke of a case, but it doesn't mean it couldn't be prosecuted. So uh, you're, you're walking into dodgy territory, and it comes down to this question of how much trouble is it going to be for your local prosecutor to actually come after you. Um, it's, it's the, the U.S. justice system is extraordinarily confusing and bizarre, um, and I don't understand it very well. But basically, it's yeah, it comes down to are you more of a pain to chase down than is worth it for them? So practice good security culture, kids, because make yourself a little more of a pain in the ass and live to fight another day and stay free. Well, where do you see that going in the future for you all? Is that going to evolve in any way? Um, or are you just going to continue to put out that information? Well, the hope is that the information proliferates sufficiently that like, we're not you know, important to the discussion anymore. Hopefully, this information proliferates uh, widely and quickly enough that so many people do it that there are free abortions everywhere in America and the lack of access to traditional medical channels becomes a moot point. And then anybody can just ask around and say, hey, do you, do you have some miso tablets in the same way that, you know, back when marijuana was criminalized everywhere, just kind of asking around would be able to get you some just about anywhere you were. Um, that's, that's kind of the hope. We, we have some other related um, release plans because looking at the opinion that the Supreme Court has put out, it looks like, first off, they're not making a distinguishing line between emergency contraception and abortion, which means emergency contraception is probably going down very quickly. It seems like probably regular contraception is not far behind. So we've come up with a new protocol that we call the Plan B+, which we really like, which is a combination of emergency contraception and post-exposure prophylaxis, because in the event that you need emergency contraception, it's not unlikely that you might need some post-exposure prophylaxis. And unfortunately, if you look in the medical books, you'll see that the antiretrovirals that you take for uh, post-exposure prophylaxis interfere with the actions of emergency contraception. But luckily, there's been some research done, and it turns out that if you just adjust the dosage and you take three milligrams instead of one and a half milligrams of the emergency contraception, it won't be interfered with by the antiretrovirals that you take for post-exposure prophylaxis. And so we're looking for more ways to, again, 
proliferate this information, make it so that people can make their own, make it so that people can help each other and keep each other healthy and keep each other safe. Are there other things that we want to talk about? Well, in general, um, uh, I should mention that uh, Hope's just going to be a presentation. We're going to sort of release these things. We're going to talk about other stuff. We're going to talk about whatever the audience wants to talk about because we have plenty of other stuff to release. But again, since we're doing the first presentation with people actually in the room in two years, what we'd really like to do is is not just release the things that we think are important, but try and figure out what the audience thinks is important. We're going to try and sort of do a live presentation where we juggle things around after taking the poll of what everybody wants to talk about and talking to the audience, sort of doing the Q&A at the beginning and hopefully releasing a bunch of information that we've dug up in the last two years since the last time we kind of spoke publicly in front of people. And then after Hope, um, three weeks later, we'll also be at DEF CON. And DEF CON will be much more in-depth. We'll be talking briefly at the Biohacking Village. Um, but then the following day, so the first talk will be on that um, that Friday, which is the 12th of August. But on the 13th, we'll be doing a, a two-hour workshop where people will be able to come in, actually work with the hardware, look at the AED, look at the micro lab, look at our various online pieces of software, which are really exciting. We have this, this new release of Chemhactica so that people can find synthesis pathways for whatever drug they're trying to do. We have a new piece of software that works in conjunction with the micro lab that is a graphical user interface in order to design program files for the micro lab so you don't have to code that from scratch anymore. And we have a little online research assistant that will help you navigate your way through medical papers. So if you're doing research on a particular ailment, uh, it will be able to manifest much more easily, even if you're not scientifically trained. So that'll be really exciting to get people in, see people getting their hands dirty, and hopefully we'll learn a lot from it too, sort of see where people get tripped up, how we can make the software better in, in later iterations, have people actually build units and, you know, maybe cook up some pharmaceuticals on the way. Um, and then the last thing, of course, is on the 14th, we're doing a sky talk, which is kind of a secret, but hopefully we'll have uh, one more really good release that we'll be able to push out to the public and, we're really excited to see people out there. We're really excited to be back in the fold and back in the fight, trying to get people access to the medicines and the medical technologies that they need again. Uh, we're hoping to um, make everybody proud and make everybody independent of the infrastructure that seems to be failing everybody so badly. Tell us where we can follow your work and just the wider collective and any other goodies that people can, can get out from the group. So if you're looking for information, we are theoretically on social media, but I think we haven't posted on most of those in a long time. You can find me on Twitter. I'm Michael S. Laufer or at Michael S. Laufer. And I usually talk about most of the stuff related to the collective. Um, we are revamping the website very soon. So you can look for our stuff at fourthievesvinegar.org. And 
If you like what Fort Thieves is doing and you want to support the mission, go out and find somebody who needs your help and help them, whether or not you think they deserve it. Angela Kaufman. I'm a resident at Saratoga Lakeview Mobile Home Park in the town of Saratoga, New York, and um, I'm very happy to be back to follow up on uh, the, the situation here in this mobile home park. Uh, we were bought, uh, the park was purchased by a new owner in June of 2021. He circumvented our tenant's right of first refusal, which is a relatively new right in the state of New York. Um, he did that by certifying in writing that he would keep the park open for five years. And in the past year and several months, he has demonstrated in numerous ways that this apparently was never his intention. His intention was to um, force uh, or drive people out of the park one by one so he could expand his neighboring boat storage business as soon as possible. Um, and we're you know, I've been fighting back from day one, which has gotten me ostracized and alienated for a while. But others are starting to see what's going on. And so we're starting to work together now. Update us from what's been happening since the last time we talked. Sure. Um, so it's it's been a little while. Um, I want to say that was probably fall of last year. And since then, there was ongoing um, harassment um, of, of me in particular, because I've been the one who is speaking openly to the press and organizing and, and things like that. Um, so over the winter, um, I get these long posts on my Facebook uh, with a profile with my neighbor's name on it. And yet these are clearly not my neighbor's words. Uh, these these long uh, diatribes are um, very ableist, insulting, negative, filled with lies, trying to make me look, you know, like a horrible person who's disturbing everybody. And right away I said, uh, you know, I posted, uh, don't engage with this person because that's either a fake account with my neighbor's name on it or my neighbor is being forced to say that. Uh, come to find out, yes, my neighbor was actually given these words by the landlord and told, copy and paste this, let's antagonize her all winter, put this all over her Facebook. Um, and that might sound like a horrible thing. And you might think, well, you know, he's an adult, he shouldn't have done that. But people need to understand, we all know we're going to be 
forced out of here at some point. And so this landlord has basically been going to different neighbors over the last year and saying, if you do what I say, um, I'll make sure you're the last one here or I'll, I'll basically, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Um, and so people who have children and low incomes and limited resources um, have been terrified. And so they've been basically doing whatever they can do to try to make sure, you know, make sure they're the last ones here, even if it means doing things they, they would never do under other circumstances. And sure enough, this person confirmed like, yeah, you know, he actually um, was like, yeah, you know, you, I saw you post that and I I knew like, OK, you you know, this isn't really me um, or this is not something I would say. So that was one example. Um over the winter, also, I went door to door um, with flyers about a, a COVID relief program that was for mobile home park residents so that if people were behind on their mortgage or their lot rent, because in mobile home parks, you pay a lot rent and you either own your home or you have a loan on your home or you rent your home. Um, so we get a double whammy. And so if people were behind because of COVID, they could apply for this financial relief. And when the landlord found out about that, um, uh, there was retaliation for that. Um, and in fact, he he built up a case to try to take me to court and evict me. Um, and he started, you know, this process rolling in February of this year with a they have to send what's called a notice to cure. Basically, it's a letter saying, here's the rules you've broken. You've got 10 days to fix it. If you don't fix it, I'm evicting you. So on his notice were things like I didn't ask his permission to fix the roof on my house, which was which was replaced nine months before he was landlord. Um, <laughs> things like because I went door to door with a flyer to try to keep my neighbors in their homes, I was, quote unquote, trespassing um, uh, just all kinds of ridiculous things. And I don't honest I don't recall if we discussed this last time, but he had me arrested at the end of October of last year because um, he removed almost all the trees out of the park. And on the last day of tree removal, I stood outside with a copy of our town's code for mobile home parks that says something to the effect of there needs to be adequate tr uh, trees to provide shade and privacy. There's not an exact number. It's kind of vague, but uh, there is a stipulation regarding trees. And I believed they were already in violation of that. And because I stood in front of the trucks, I was trying to delay them until I could talk to code or get some kind of answer from a, a neutral third party. He had me arrested for trespassing um, after a two hour ordeal of, you know, being sworn at by the tree cutting company and hearing them tell their crew to run me over if I got in their way. Um, and so he's been, you know, the landlord's been telling the media that I am a danger that I tried to throw myself into a wood chipper, which is bogus. I don't know if he's been watching too much Fargo. That never happened. Uh, but he also, you know, the charges on that were dropped uh, in the interest of justice. But again, he tried to use that as an example of me being a danger and, and why he needed to evict me. So uh, we went to court July 12th um, and he had letters that he presented that were signed by uh, two different neighbors, uh, both with very vague statements um, in language very similar to his language, stating that I'm a nuisance and I, you know, harass people and I'm this, you know, terrible, horrible person and that they left the park because of me. And yet when his witness took the stand, which is one of my neighbors, um, this person did not want to be there. Um, and he told the truth. Um, he told the truth because one, you know, 
people do the right thing. Like they, they really, you know, people are not trying to be bad people. Um, so he told the truth because it was the right thing to do, but also because my neighbors started to realize that if, if we get evicted, they're next. And so he testified under oath that the landlord um, paid people to leave the park and paid them to sign these letters that he had written. Um, he testified that he was given these uh, messages to um, post all over my Facebook um, and a number of other things. He And another thing that happened was um, in April of this year, the landlord parked a dumpster basically in my driveway, not completely blocking me from getting in and out, but, you know, a few feet from the house. And the dumpster was there between April 18th and July 8th, and it was only changed once. Um, I was told that the landlord um, instructed his employee to dump fish fertilizer in it to make it smell even worse. Um, and the initial dumpster, the smell would be consistent with that. And, you know, in court, the landlord tried to say that was the only place in the park that he could possibly park the dumpster and it wasn't harassment. And yet when his witness took the stand, um, he testified. He not only said that the landlord said in front of him that they put the dumpster there to annoy me, but that when they had it changed, they were going to put it even further in the driveway to be more of a nuisance. And as he said this, my neighbor looked up at the landlord's attorney and pointed to him and said, and you were there in that meeting when he said this. So it was it was a pretty big um, twist of events that I don't think the landlord was counting on um, because it seems like he's used to intimidating people and, and getting his way. Um, but it's changed the dynamics of things around here. Uh, the harassment is still going on. Um, but previously, you know, neighbors were afraid to talk to each other. And now that more of us are talking to each other, I'm learning that there was actually a great deal of harassment and abusive behavior going on in the last year towards other neighbors that I didn't know about until very recently. So um, so things have been really bad. Um but the relief and the empowerment of people starting to come together and talk to each other and fighting back against the divide and conquer uh, that the landlord is trying to play, um, that's been its own kind of relief. I mean, knowing that we can work together now where before we were obstructed from doing that um, has been empowering. Yeah, talk a little bit about that. How are people coming together to fight back? Uh, so it's everybody's not quite a lot of people are shy, which is understandable uh, because this guy did a lot of damage. I mean, the gaslighting is unbelievable that that he's done here. Um, but what's happening is more people are realizing that one, even though he said he would, you know, protect them or, or help them or whatever, when push came to shove, he didn't help them. Um, and so they're seeing him for who he is. So people who previously were like, I had no contact with them because I didn't have like we would see each other in the park, but I didn't have their phone numbers or their emails or that kind of thing. Um, and people have given each other contact information. We've been in touch. We are very conscious of each other's um, those of us that are working together are very conscious of each other's safety still. So there's, you know, there's security cameras all over the place. Um, and so, you know, a number of people have said that it feels like a prison camp here. Um, so, People have gotten more open to um, communicating discreetly. But there's also a few people who have finally said, I've had enough. I'm going to talk to my neighbors. This is ridiculous. And I don't care if he knows about it. Whereas before, people were afraid, like people were afraid to be seen talking to me because then they'd get 
emails and text messages saying like, oh, you're on her side now. Um, and, and in fact, at one point when the landlord found out or suspected, I don't even know if I was even talking to this one neighbor, but at one point the landlord suspected that one of my neighbors was talking to me and to penalize this person, he put um, boulders on their front lawn um, at kind of encroaching on, on their lot and, and let it be known to another neighbor that this was intentional um, because this person was like, quote unquote, on my side now. Um, so there's been a lot of petty things. Um, but, you know, what I've what I've tried to convey to people that I've been in contact with is one, um, a lot of harm has been done here. And I can't tell anyone to for, I can't make anyone forgive anyone. But I've really tried to impress on people that uh, folks were not acting of their own volition. People were acting under pressure, under threat, under intimidation. Um, and so on the one hand, I'm trying to be sensitive to um uh, some of the tension that still exists and the mistrust that still exists. But on the other hand, I'm also trying to encourage people to kind of see the bigger picture and to understand that, you know, OK, maybe that wasn't the best decision to make, but people were tr doing at the time what they thought was best to protect their family. And if we work together, we can, you know, the more we work together, the less of that is going to happen. Um, but it's been a challenge. So I I've tried to respect everybody's different levels of boundaries and privacy. Um, you know, even though the judge said, hey, you can, you know, this is not trespassing. You can knock on your neighbor's doors. That's why we have doorbells. I'm still very leery about going to doors. Um, but people know they can get in touch with me in a number of different ways. Um, and we've started, there's a number of us that have started looking out for each other. And it, it actually feels like I wish this, I wish we could have done this months ago. Um, there's, there's so much harm that has been done. And if we had had, these things in place to kind of have each other's back sooner that could have been maybe to some extent lessened. Uh, but I'm just so grateful that the trust is very slowly building back now. Right now there's a couple rent strikes happening mm -hmm. across the U S at different mobile home parks. It's great to see that more people are fighting back for sure. Definitely. And, and defending themselves. So what happens next? Well, um, there are, um, State authorities that after, you know, after being in touch for basically this entire time now have um, uh, the the details they need to go forward with an investigation. So an investigation is underway. Um, we're continuing. You know, I'm 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 hopeful about that, but I'm not putting all my eggs in that basket uh, because at the end of the day, you know, people are you know, you're the only we have to fight for ourselves. The, the state is not going to save us. Um, so my plan is to continue to try to work on, on the healing that needs to happen here. Um, and, and there's a lot, uh, the, the park was basically, there were parts of it that were, were trashed pretty badly. And so we're exploring how we can try to, you know, fix certain things and clean certain things up because he's, you know, he's conveyed to people that he's not going to do it because he thought the health department would shut it down if they saw, you know, trash in different places and things like that. Um, so it's it's still, I think, going to be a long road. But my hope is that we're going to keep um, keep in contact with each other and um, and even just sharing so that people understand what their rights are, because a lot of what happened was, you know, people don't know what their rights are. You can go online, but it's not always clear. Um, and so it's easy for somebody to come along and say the AG isn't going to do anything. Um, you know, basically, I'm the best bet you have if you want to have a you know good chance of moving on with your life. And so there's a lot of educating that needs to to go on here. Um, 
and and just kind of getting everybody just back to being a community. Um, and I, I, you know, eagerly await the outcome of the investigation. But at the same time, um, I'm also going to be putting together a fund um, to uh, protect the community in general. And so this will be, it's not, it's not up yet, but it will be like a GoFundMe that is going to be mutual aid for emergencies, be it something where the, the landlord targets the next person and they need a lawyer, um, or, you know, somebody falls behind in rent or somebody needs a repair. And so, you know, hopefully we'll be able to get some sort of general funds to fight back. Uh, I was very lucky to have found a lawyer after looking for six months. And this guy, this was his very last trial. He was already retired and he did this as a favor. And, um, and this was his last trial. Um, and it's hard to find lawyers who will, um, who even specialize or understand mobile home park law because it's, it's so specialized. So, you know, I want to make sure people understand their rights, that we continue working together, uh, restore some harmony here and get some, you know, get some funds going. So people, you know, the last thing I want is for anyone to feel like this landlord is the only person they can go to, um, because that's, you know, if you whether you live in a mobile home park or an apartment, uh, if we don't take care of each other, that person who's going to have, you know, make you sign your your soul away is going to be the person who comes in and says, well, I'll help you, but it's going to cost you something. So I'm hoping we can get to a point where everybody here understands that we're going to try our best to provide for each other and nobody has to go to this guy for help. We back for everything you owe, no longer oppressed Cause now we overthrow those that placed us in this rotten mess Melissa Beal's strategy and pick out enemies Ride who stands accused of the abuse My own kind of rock part Not disregarding what you thinking But you must abandon shit Cause once I rip your whole shit is sinking Supreme ideology, you claim the whole Claiming that we all drug dealers with empty souls That used to take me to roll Commit to violence in the midst of it that could roll Witnesses left silence and shatter Black talent style Thoughts I throw, it remains in your brain, then of course it grows. Maybe even your babies can produce and rob. Picture the life where black babies can survive fast five. But we must have hope. Quoting the rabbit from the corporate refuse to turn the other cheek. We must defeat the evil corporate. Lakes me with words of destruction and I'll explode. But supply me with the will to survive and watch the world grow. This ain't about talking about problems, I bring solutions. with the restitution? Stipulated through the constitution. You violated now, I'm back to haunt your nights. This of the lives you sacrifice in the case you don't know Get a warm black seed still grow We coming back for everything you owe I'm Jupiter, I'm born and raised in South Georgia And I've been organizing with uh, the Fit in the Forest for about a year now I'm specifically working with the Winnie Coalition And the Stop Cop City Black Coalition Yeah, my name's Bobcat, I've been uh working with the Sock Cop City and Defend the Forest Coalition since um, the beginnings of it, and um, also especially through survival resistance. Well, Jupiter, why don't you tell us what's been going on? It's been a while since we've had somebody on the show uh, talking about the campaign to stop Cop City. What would you tell those listening that might just have a basic understanding of the struggle, where things are at right now? Yeah, uh, so in terms of the struggle... Uh, this movement has been happening for longer than a year. Um, and it's an ever-growing movement. Um, and obviously, right now where we are is that it's reached, it's obviously reaching, um, like, a national media, international media. And the struggle, the state repression is obviously growing. Um, 
as the facility, as it's coming closer to the facility, being actually built for the trees being cut down. And so the week of action just happened, and um, this was the second um, week of action, and there was a raid by the police uh, to basically remove, to destroy the trees, to remove the tree centers um, from the forest. And yeah, that's, okay, to just yeah, basically uh, create um, a sense of fear around um, strategies and the struggle that's been, that, that are struggles that are happening on the ground, both in the forest and outside of the forest. Um, and so, yeah, what we find ourselves in terms of this movement is that it, 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 it's, I wouldn't necessarily call it a movement, it's a bunch of movements happening together because um, in terms of environmental justice, in terms of gentrification, in terms of um, ecological disaster, there are so many moving aspects to the Defend the Forest and Stop Cost City movement, um, and a bunch of different collectives, a bunch of different autonomous organizers are collectively working together uh, to create a strategy against repression, and so not just in the forest, but um, organizing to incorporate working class communities, organizing against environmental uh, racism and neglect, and um, yeah, that's kind of how I would describe the current moment. Bobcat, do you want to talk about the recent week of action there? I know there was so much that went on. Just kind of walk us through what all took place. Like the other week of actions, this is the fourth. Uh, and there's a bunch of autonomous uh, cultural events and different things, concerts. Um, there was a talk about the Muscogee Creek history by. Uh, a professor of Native American literature here in Atlanta, who's part of the movement. And we've been involving more and more local people in the movement. Um, and also, over the week of action, there were marches. There was uh, a bulldozer came into the forest early on Saturday of the week of action and tried to tear down a gazebo in the middle of a park, which is still a public park. At least that's our legal argument. That's the argument of groups like the South River Watershed Alliance who are suing Brian Millsap. The bulldozer came in and started trying to tear down this gazebo while people were still inside. It went basically right over their head, the bucket, and nearly took their head off. So it was a very aggressive bulldozing. And the bulldozer was ultimately chased away by the crowd. And uh, the tow truck which had brought the bulldozer was left. And it, we all believed that it was meant to tow cars. But um, it seems like uh, it was left behind and eventually it was destroyed completely. And then graffiti over the ruins. Right, and there was a couple large concerts that took place as well that drew out a lot of people. Yeah, there was an entire music festival. Um, they were passing out zines that were about uh, another music festival that happened in Atlanta history during the 1960s, Piedmont Park, where the police tried to shut down the free festival that was put on by the, the counterculture community. And it turned into a riot that brought together the counterculture and the new left and uh, the civil rights movement at the time. And we've taken a lot of inspiration from stuff like that, but we're looking at 
people's park in Berkeley. Not as an example of all the things like the environmental justice and the abolitionist aspect, but of freeing the land and bringing it back to the people instead of these private interests. Jupiter, I wanted to ask, there seems to be kind of like all these different facets of of folks getting involved. Can you speak to just how the campaign is like reaching out to various communities in the local area and getting them involved in the organizing? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So, of course, you know, as the struggle grows, support for the struggle grows. And as support for the struggle grows, there's obviously going to need to be strategies to involve. Um, surrounding communities because um, this fight is about them and they will be the most directly impacted um, if this cop facility is built, if, if they're successful, if Black Home is successful, if the city of Atlanta is successful. And so that, what this what does look like is just being very intentional about relationship building with these communities and trying to figure out accessible ways for them to be involved because obviously we're in a recession, there's COVID, there's monkeypox. Um, and folks usually lack capacity and resources to join in on um, movements like this when they have something to lose. Um, I think I showed up to the, as someone who grew up around the forest, I showed up to this movement with nothing to lose. Uh, I'm like, I'm a full-time autonomous organizer. Uh, but that's not the reality of the folks around the community and other working class folks who are being affected by, you know, one-off and water pollution, sewage pollution, um, surrounding the forest and other communities. So what does yeah, what does it look like? It's just um, strategic canvassing in the communities where we have um, yeah, where we have canvassing se- weekly canvassing sessions or whenever we can um, people can come together, whether that's bi-weekly. And during these canvassing sex sessions, we're basically trying to create um, intimacy around intimacy between these communities and the movement. By making it relevant, um, by making sure that the work that um, within the forest is doing and Stop Cop City is doing can resonate with the folks and that they see themselves in the movement. Because as the struggle grows, it's obviously protracted, but we're going to need more bodies in this fight. Um, and so that also looks like strategic political education. That looks like um, teachings for the communities. That's something that's being planned right now. And even on accessibility, like how can our teachings for within the forest and stop cop cities incorporate uh, ways that folks can show up? So, like, what time of day can those teachings happen? Will there be food? Will there be childcare? And just making sure that we have strategic care networks um, to uh, for folks to not just be able to show up to the movement, but sustain their presence in the movement. So. Um, there are me and a few other autonomous organizers in the Wallonian Coalition and the Stop Custody Black Coalition um, that are building out um, building out principal um, ways to relationship build, uh, building out principal ways to incorporate um, working class and lower class folks into the struggle to to build this movement because it's growing um, and. State repression is also growing. You know, the cops are smart; they're watching us. But we want the cops to know that we want the state, the state, and the city to know, and these corporations to know that we're watching that, um, and that this movement is is built out of care and it's personal for a lot of us, and it's interpersonal and it's intercommunal. 
Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of how I'm incorporating the surrounding communities has looked like so far, and obviously that's something that's still blossoming as this movement grows. How do you engage folks that, you know, have different levels of, you know, time and, and being able to be involved but still want to, like, participate in the struggle? Like, how does that all work out? Yeah, I actually think a lot of that has to do with, uh, for lack of better terms, like, quote-unquote, onboarding into the movement. So, like, doing a skills assessment um, and creating, like, defined roles. And obviously, that's extremely hard when you have what I would characterize as a decentralized movement. Um but trying to be very intentional about skills assessment, like, you know, what community or what's lacking in the movement um, that could really build um, a strong foundation and how can folks around the community, if they can, contribute to that, what skills do they have? Um, what, what are, you know, like, a capacity assessment? What are, how many, you know, like, what's the demographic of folks in the neighborhood who are um, doing, like, service jobs? You know, when are they... What kind of skills can they offer from um, personal skills or um, skills that they have that they offer to, you know, these jobs? How can they be, how can these skills be added? I'm sorry, I'm mumbling up my words. But, um, yeah, basically just like a skills assessment and figuring out um, how to better ground this movement in, in a way that is going to sustain accessibility because I think that is the most important um, aspect of continuing to have, like, you know, people resources um, to stop the cops from succeeding in their efforts to take, you know, the tree, to take the trees out and the tree, the tree sitters out of the trees. There is very, you know, the cops are obviously being very intimidating, um, but it's also political education around cop watching and knowing your rights for folks around the community um, so that they're not, um, so that these folks are not pushed pushed out of the movement by fear um, due to, like, you know, incognito and their intimidation tactics, but I can let Bobcat also speak on that more. Yeah, I mean, I would say that um, in addition to the canvassing and just knocking on people's doors, talking to them about the issues, one of the ways that we've uh, reached out to the public is through mutual aid and through setting up uh, food distros at the, the Weilani People's Park and, um, a Zapatista-inspired free store called the Cambalache was set up by a local environmental justice group called Mariposas Rebeldes. We always try to have the big events that we want lots of people to be able to go to in times where we think working-class people can make it, you know, because uh, we know that people have jobs, and it has been a thing sometimes with these events all through the week. Some of them are inaccessible to people who work regular day jobs. For some events, we've consciously corrected for that. I'd also add that um, to what Bobcat was saying in terms of um, how incorporating the surrounding communities look like, especially while the police are continuing their intimidation tactics, but also being strategic about like secure communications. And because obviously um, the um, upper class, the you know politicians and Folks who are supporting, you know, media outlets that support these corporations that support Cosidi in their efforts are, you know, uh, trying to be ahead of us and putting out false reports about forest defenders, um, either shooting at, you know, carrying weapons or shooting at cops. Obviously, this is a strategic way to build a narrative around um, the organizers and stop Cosidi in the forest to uh, make them seem 
aggressive and intimidating, uh, which is obviously a lot. You know, that's the cops. So it's also look like being being on top of uh, your communications, uh, sending out emails from the email um, addresses of folks that we can to and making sure, you know, creating a newsletter. And so these are things that are, uh, again, obviously blossoming as we're trying to create a strategy um, against, like, this um mischaracterizations of strategies for the stop And I I wanna also add, you know, the number one thing that we always ask people besides helping us out in all these ways is just to come to the forest. And that I think is our main way of getting people involved is saying, Come down here, come see the forest, come fall in love with the forest, and then you will want to come help us defend it. We do tours and teach people about the history of the forest. Some people, though, just whether it's for accessibility reasons or just their temperament, they don't want to go out in the forest. And that's fine, too. And we have lots of calling campaigns and um, email campaigns that are available to people who want to get involved just digitally. People who are in other cities can uh, do banner drops and uh, graffiti and demonstrations at the offices of contractors like Brassfield and Gory and Atlas Technical. There's lots of ways to help, no matter where you are. I wanted to ask about the reaction from the local media and also the police, what they've been kind of putting out in response to the movement. It seems like there's sort of a lack of coverage, at least from more mainstream sources or local news outlets. I'm curious how it appears to you all on the ground. One thing to take note of here is that the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, which is the biggest, uh, oldest newspaper that's local to Atlanta, it sponsors the APF. So the APF is the Atlanta Police Foundation, the private uh, entity that moves the police money around for them outside of public scrutiny and they get their money from the AJC. So that, I think, provides some insight into why you don't hear about this kind of thing from the AJC. You will hear about it on Atlanta Community Press Collective and Autonomous News Atlanta. So AJC, you know, Bobcat was speaking on the fact that AJC is one of the major partners of the Atlanta Police Foundation who is providing major funding um, for this Cop City project. And yeah, if you if you go simply go to Google or any web browser and you type in AJC Stop Cop City, AJC actually has done quite a lot of coverage. Um, you know, if you go there, you would see maybe four article, articles pop up on your um, Google search result, results. And I believe the latest article was written June 15, and it's um, basically different opinion on you know the law, quote unquote lawlessness over new APD training site. And, of course, the perspective is um, written um, from a very oppressive point, from a very um, strategic perspective, trying to um, criminalize the the tree sitters, the forest defenders, and other organizers on the ground. And so, yeah, um, AJC has been applied like four times, has been one of the major local news outlets that have been doing basically a great job at um, mischaracterizing the movement and trying to criminalize um, 
trying to criminalize the police offenders. And how do you feel coming out of this week of action? Like, how are people feeling? Are they feeling energized? The folks that we've talked to on the ground are talking about how this is like one of the most inspiring things they've seen. Yeah, I definitely think people are inspired. I think that people are being able to see um, their own power in action. And uh, it's really empowering, for lack of a better word, for people to just take power into their own hands and create the better world that they want. There's all kinds of things being built in the forest. It's becoming more of a food forest. There's the Weilani People's Garden, um, which survived the raids this week. Uh, there's art, there's culture coming out of the forest. And um, I think it's really valuable, not just as an autonomous zone, but as an example of what things could be like as we are going out there and sort of prefiguring a free world where people, if nobody wants to destroy the forest, some oligarchs can't just do that. Where do you all see things going from here? I see a movement building and I see it um, evolving in a very multifaceted way. I see that from a personal point of view, as someone who grew up around a forest, um, who grew up around, you know, these gentrified neighborhoods, um, these neighborhoods that have been consistently developed, I see the protection of the forest as a protection of the surrounding black communities. They're trying to kill the forest in order to kill black communities. You know, this training facility is going to be a facility that is um, basically training Cops for major urban cities. Um, it's tied to the Israeli state. Um, and yeah, this is, I see this as something that is extremely urgent. And yeah, so the way I see it going from here is that people are, it, it kind of reminds me of the feeling right before the 2020 riots, um, the George Floyd riots. Um, but I feel like people are building a sense of personal resistance. To me, it feels like this fight. It's going to be extremely urgent, not just because the forest is being destroyed, but because this is, this, they're preparing for warfare. Um, this cop facility is, is going to be training officers in the South for, for urban warfare. Um, and obviously, um, yeah, obviously that is going to wreak havoc, um, not just on communities in Georgia, but communities, you know, national, communities, communities, uh, international communities, and my hope is that this fight continues to just really, really reach people's personal, personal, reach a, reach a personal spot in people's heart, um, considering the political climate um, of the last few years, and I, because of this political climate, I believe that this movement is going to spark a lot of strategic, strategic tactics towards, yeah, ending the police state is fighting back against the preparation for genocide, because I do believe that is, that is um, what's going to happen. That, are, that's, that is what cops are going to be trained for um, at this facility. And so, you know, a war against the poor, a war against the houses, which has already been happening, is, you know, obviously this cop facility is going to intensify that. And so personally for me, this, yeah, this feels very personal. I feel like I have not, um, you know, nothing to lose in joining this fight, and I wish that my hope is that other people arrive to this 
um, private, not for a sense of adventurism, not because this seems cool, but because this is personal. It's interpersonal, it's intercommunal, um, it's a fight against, it's tied to global capitalism. It's, it, you know, where black people on this land are internal colonies, and I hope that when we look at other, you know, third world fights against police brutality and police militarization, we can begin to understand that we are in an we are you know an internalized colony within an imperial core, and partner with third world people, um, and begin to um, really just strategize as if we're third world people living in an imperial core. What you would tell others that are looking to Atlanta for inspiration? What kind of lessons uh, would you impart on them? I think the biggest thing that I would tell people is. Um, for one, to learn from the past and be sensitive to the past. That's how we've taken such inspiration from people's part and the way that, the, the way that they, uh, brought their land back to the commons. Um, we have learned from marine struggles and, uh, indigenous struggles in the past during our political education events. That's why we, decided to call it Weilani People's Park is based on the original People's Park. So I think it's very fitting that the cops were raiding both of those places at the same time. It exhibits the fact that we're in a global struggle. We've always said this is not a local movement. It is local because it's full of local people, but it's full of people all over the world too. And by the way, shout out to Athens, Solidarity, right back from Atlanta to Athens. That may be the furthest ones who've given us solidarity, solidarity to the anti-fascist prisoners in Greece and the hunger strikers. And the other thing that I would tell people is to not lose hope. I think that there is a real chance for demoralization early on in the movement when the city council ran through the project. Um, but I think they did it so early, so sloppily, that there was still, you know, some hope for, for people who wanted to follow the process, but most of that was dashed early on. And we were able to come to people and say, look, this is not over. We, we have to draw a line here to where we can't follow the process if it means our voices are not taken into account at all. And the voices of local people and the voices of indigenous people and black people who would be affected by the project. We eventually had to say, no, it's not over. And it doesn't matter what city council says about it. The people say it's not over. I believe that we will win. And that's the attitude that people have had throughout that's made this really different from other things. Um, yeah, I, I agree with um, a lot of what Bobcat said. Um, I see the sacred, I see the struggle as very sacred. It's a very sacred struggle. And therefore, our arrival to the struggle must be very intentional. And so I would just remind people, um, that if they desire to arrive to the struggle, to do it in a very intentional way, think about your own skills, think about how you can put, find someone to talk to. Um, even if you begin talking to, whether you're listening from New York, California, Idaho, uh, Oklahoma, Begin talking about this movement through word of mouth. Um, go online and to the uh, Defend the Forest website, print out a flyer, hang it up on a pole, um, and start to disseminate information verbally and virtually about the movement. Uh, because one of the main 
you know, weapons of destruction and our, and our struggle is misinformation and mis- mischaracterization. Um, so I would just encourage people to do that and just remind, also remind people that it's okay to feel anger and despair for what's happening and that it's possible to organize out of both of those um, emotional states. I'm someone who organizes out of despair. You know, my despair is radicalized me. This has been the It's Going Down podcast. Check itsgoingdown.org for daily updates, columns, action reports, and news. Go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support us and follow us on all social media platforms. IGD, your daily resource for insurgent proletarian life.